This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. This is the Science Podcast for September 16th, 2022. I'm Sarah Crespi. Each week we talk about the most interesting news and research from science and the sister journals. First up this week, we have news intern Zach Savitsky. He joins me to talk about an upcoming NASA mission that's scheduled to ram a little spacecraft into an asteroid at the end of this month to test out some ideas about how we might defend our planet one day from an incoming asteroid. Also this week, researcher Mohamed Samshudaha joins me to talk about the Bengal water machine in Bangladesh. This is how millions of individual farmers are creating a giant underground sponge that soaks up fresh water during monsoon season. The main event of NASA's Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART, is set for September 26th when the DART craft will ram a 160-meter asteroid that's orbiting a larger 780-meter asteroid. The mission intends to test possible planetary defenses against asteroids. News intern Zach Savitsky wrote about the mission this week in Science. Hi, Zach. Hi, Sarah. So the DART craft left Earth in November 2021. It will kind of violently rendezvous with an asteroid in less than two weeks. And this is the smaller of two asteroids. This is a 160-meter asteroid that it's going to hit into, and it's orbiting a larger one. Why pick this pair for this kind of test, and, and why aim at the smaller one? The reason why we're targeting Dimorphos is the name of the smaller moon is because it's actually this size of asteroids that planetary defense specialists are most concerned about. And that's because while the bigger asteroids, like the ones that cause extinction of the non-avian dinosaurs are much larger and cause much more destruction on Earth. They only come once per 100 or 200 million years. And we've been able to identify all of the nearby asteroids of that size and confirm that none of them are headed our way. Meanwhile, the 1,000-meter asteroids, which are a little bit smaller but could still cause a possible collapse of civilization, we've identified about 95% of those. So we're pretty safe from those as well. We don't think that they would happen more than every 500,000 years. Now we're down to the small guys. Right. So the small guys around 140 meters, that's where we actually get concerned because there are an estimated 25,000 of them near Earth. We estimate that they could hit every 20,000 years on average, and they could still cause 
regional damage. So they could really destroy a state or small country. And so they're much more frequent. They're much harder to detect and identify. Therefore, those are the ones that we'd be most concerned for these efforts. Okay, so let's hit the small one and see what happens. Right. You asked also why hit this asteroid system. Basically, the reason why we're targeting this, what's called a binary asteroid system. So we're hitting this smaller asteroid that's orbiting a bigger one. Part of the motivation is that it's orbitally locked around the larger body. Therefore, we're not concerned that we're going to knock it toward Earth on accident. The other reason is that we can learn a lot more from the light coming off of these binary asteroid systems. On Earth, we see both of these asteroids as a single point of light. But because they're orbiting one another, when one of the rocks passes in front of the other one, we see that light dip in brightness. And that's how we can figure out things like the orbital frequency and get some estimates on the size of the bodies and the spin of them. So that's really important as well. So that's another way to kind of look at it, another test of what happens before we hit it and after we hit it. Exactly. That's actually the main test. Up until the early 2000s, the early part of the century, I guess, asteroids were seen as these big, hulking rocks, solid bodies flying through space. But this view has changed in the past few years. Can you talk about what happened that made us rethink what their composition is like? Yeah, so this is really crucial to the DART mission as well. As you mentioned, around the early 2000s, scientists assumed that these small asteroids in particular were just solid boulders. But then theories started changing as scientists began to characterize the spin rates of different asteroids and realize that they might actually be sort of uh, piles of grain and pebbles and rocks just grouped together by their own gravity and other cohesive forces in space. And then that was really confirmed for the first time in 2019 when Japan sent the Hayabusa 2 probe to an asteroid called Ryugu. And it did an impact cratering experiment where it shot this two kilogram copper projectile at the asteroid. And what they saw was a 14 meter large crater, which was way bigger than they're expecting. And that told them that this is likely a much weaker asteroid surface than they expected. A similar thing happened the following year when NASA's OSIRIS-REx probe landed on the asteroid Bennu, and it sort of just sank right in when it went to sample material. And that, again, reinforced the idea that these are much weaker than they had expected. What do we know about Dimorphos, the asteroid that we're aiming for here? Do we know if it is a solid or is it composed of this loose rock and grains and this kind of pile of rubble? We don't know. That's sort of the exciting part here. We've only been able to get a really loose, fuzzy picture of what this system looks like in general. We have a pretty good idea of the parent body, Didymos, and scientists are pretty confident that that is a rubble pile. But as for Dimorphos itself, a lot of them believe that it too will be a rubble pile just based on the fact that the two most recent ones that we've been to of this size are piles of rubble. But they haven't gotten any direct images of Dimorphos' surface, so it's really hard to know what it actually looks like. In order to simulate what happens when the dark craft hits this asteroid, I mean, we need to know or we need to have some kind of range of expectations, you know, and that's going to have to really be different if it's a solid versus a loose pile of rocks, right? Exactly. And that's a super important point for the preparation work that's gone into this mission. In order to figure out whether or not this planetary defense mission was a success, we have to tell what actually happened to the system. This system is really far away. We only see it as a point of light with most of our telescopes on Earth. And so in order to do that, we have to have predictions of what the outcome will look like. Those predictions, the early ones, were made assuming that the 
target was going to be a solid body, like a boulder. So you hit one rock with something else hard and you get your billiard ball physics. Like a game of pool in space. But very recently, scientists have started to incorporate into the models the idea that this asteroid might be a weakly bound pile of rubble. And those simulations are showing very different impacts, basically transferring a lot more momentum to the target body than it would if the target were a solid boulder. Does that mean that it would move off of its course more? Is that what you mean by transferring more momentum? Correct. They're predicting that if it is a, a weakly bound asteroid, that it will nudge Dimorphos slightly farther, which actually means slightly closer to Didymos, its parent. Okay, so this is a look ahead, basically. We're talking about something that's going to happen towards the end of this month. There's been modeling in computers and on Earth. Can you kind of walk us through the events leading up to the impact on September 26th? Yes. Okay, so as you mentioned, the DART spacecraft launched last November. And since then, it's been slowly but surely heading toward its target asteroid. About a week out from the collision, DART released this mini satellite inside of it, which will follow it to go take some pictures afterwards. And then four hours before the impact, it turns on its smart autonomous driving mode. And so then it's steering itself completely from there. About an hour, hour and a half out from the impact, that's when it can finally see its target for the first time. About two and a half minutes before impact, it stops driving and it just begins coasting. And that's when it reaches this final speed of about six kilometers per second. And I looked that up, more than 20,000 kilometers per hour. Wow. Then it smashes into the asteroid. And I'm assuming we're not going to see DART again after that. It's not going to survive the impact. It will not survive the impact. <laughs> but how will we know what happens? Are we these little, uh, little tiny CubeSats that are released going to beam back visual to us of the impact? Yeah, so DART is this vending machine-sized spacecraft. And it starts out at about 610 kilograms. And then it'll lose some of that weight when it deploys Lisha Cube, which is the CubeSat that it's been storing inside, which happened on Sunday. And so leading up to the impact from when DART can first see its target, it will be taking its own images of the asteroid up until the moment of impact. And then after that, it relies on the spectators. One of those being this Lisha Cube CubeSat that it releases, um, which has two optical cameras, but it also has a, a whole crew of spectators on Earth and in space. So there are four ground-based observatories that will mon be monitoring this event. There's also the James Webb Space Telescope and the Hubble Space Telescope, which have some dedicated time set aside to go monitor this dot of light to see what happens after the impact. How long will it take for us to see the images from DART or the CubeSats that are nearby? So I believe it takes about 30 seconds for the images to transfer from DART's cameras to our monitors on Earth. So we'll see those pictures leading up to the impact in near real time. Very cool. Okay, so we're going to learn some things about the structure of this object. And we're also going to see kind of how much we push it out of its orbit. How does it help us with planetary defense to do this? Ultimately, that's the motivation for this whole mission, right? This is a test, but if there is an asteroid coming toward Earth in the future, we want to know if this is an effective way to divert it off of its course toward us. We've learned from doing this modeling that it's really important to know what the internal structure of this asteroid is going to be. Because the crucial thing that we want to do 
in the event of an actual asteroid threat is transfer the right amount of momentum. We want to hit it hard enough so that it gets off course, but not so hard that it gets vaporized and sends all of these little rock fragments toward Earth. That would be bad. And so we really need to get an estimate of how hard do we need to hit this to do what we want it to do. And hopefully this DART experiment will be able to learn what the internal composition of this asteroid is. And also if it is a rubble pile, we'll be able to get the first real estimates of how much momentum do we transfer to a rubble pile asteroid. And if a future one is of a similar composition, then what should we do in that case? So I've seen some movies about asteroids and they're threatening the Earth. But when we go visit them in the movies, they're never a pile of rubble. <laughs> that is fair. Yeah, this is reflective of, you know, taking some time to transfer scientific thought into public perception, I guess. How do those movies, you know, that feature asteroids hitting the Earth, how do they compare to what we know in reality could happen or, or might happen? Yeah, so this really is a reflection of science fiction influencing science, right? Where we've had a bunch of movies where this actually happens like Armageddon and most recently Don't Look Up. And I actually got to speak with the science consultant for Don't Look Up, Dr. Amy Mainzer. We had a, an interesting conversation about how the movie Don't Look Up, the asteroid threat was sort of a proxy for real world threats like climate change. But these actually could pose a threat to us on Earth. And that's really important to keep in mind is that while the likelihood of an event like this wiping out civilization is very low, and the odds that an asteroid will even cause regional devastation are much lower compared to things like climate change, which we already know are playing a severe role in devastating different parts of the world. But these still are a potential threat, and it is worth testing out this potential strategy to help in the case of a real event. All right. Well, I'm really excited. I hope I can catch some of this live footage or close to live footage when it happens in a few weeks. Thanks so much, Zach. Thank you, Sarah. Zach Savitsky is a news intern for science. You can read the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Up next, Mohammed Shamsudaha from the University College London's Institute for Risk and Disaster Reduction talks with me about calculating the storage size of the Bengal water machine. Listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join. In places with strong monsoon seasons like India or Bangladesh, there's a lot of rain and water in this concentrated period. This supports agriculture. It helps water crops. And then there isn't much rain the rest of the year. But farming must continue. Now we have Mohammed Shamsudaha. He wrote this week in Science about shifting gigantic amounts of fresh water through the actions of millions of individual farmers in Bangladesh. Hi, Shams. Hello there, Sarah. Nice to meet you and thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, sure. In the title of your paper, you talk about the Bengal water machine. This idea of a water machine was first introduced to the wider world in a 1970s paper in science. 
What exactly is a water machine? I don't think everyone knows, even though it's been so long. Yes, you're right. The first paper talking about the Ganges water machine by Roger Revel and Venkatacharya Lakshminarayana, two visionary scientists, published this paper in 1975, where they basically talked about an idea of saving monsoon water by pumping groundwater during the dry season to lower the groundwater level as much as they can and then filling it up during the subsequent monsoon along the river Ganges. And that way, they were proposing an idea of not only augmenting groundwater storage, but also at the same time that excess water, the surface water, which could otherwise contribute to flooding, can be also mitigated. The idea then is to make more room underground for water by taking out the water during the dry season. And then you have this kind of big dry sponge to soak up more monsoon water. And that helps make water available year round and then also kind of mitigates flooding. Exactly. Exactly. I think you have summed it uh, very well. Why do this instead of, say, make a giant reservoir, you know, just funnel all the monsoon water into like a surface lake? We're talking about the vast floodplains of the um, rivers Ganges and Brahmaputra, where there is hardly any topography. So it's very flat lying land. So creating, you know, such a suitable place for constructing a dam is not there, first of all. And second of all, these large-scale infrastructure requires uh, a lot of money to invest. The idea was proposed in the 1970s. And now this paper here, you're looking to quantify this. Is this happening? What's the scale? But did you know that this was happening? I mean, people were probably testing it in small ways, right? Yes. Between 1975 and now 2022, there has been a number of studies. Occasionally, uh, they cited this 1975 paper, and then some of the paper looked at through modeling and some kind of conceptual ideas, testing this very idea of the Ganges water machine. But no one actually quantified and provide an evidence that actually this is happening and this is not only happening, no one could actually tell that this is the kind of volumetric water was stored by this very process of the Ganges water machine. So this was our opportunity to first time quantify in volumetric term the freshwater capture from rainwater and surface water bodies. So what kind of data did you collect to figure out the scale that this was happening on? So there is a government organization or agency called the Bangladesh Water Development Board. They are in charge of monitoring water resources in Bangladesh, and they manage a network of about 1,250 monitoring borehole stations all across Bangladesh. And in my PhD work, I collated data from them, and I processed the data and I developed a simple database. And when I was doing the database, I have observed that in some of the hydrographs, long-term groundwater level records, we could actually see that the dry season water level was going down and down and down, whereas the wet season water level wasn't going down. 
And that got my supervisor, who is Richard Taylor, the second author on this paper. I did my PhD with him. So Richard and I uh, started thinking about this process. And then this is when we also found out this Ganges water machine paper. And we thought, huh, wouldn't it be nice to be able to quantify and to present the amount of freshwater capture possible because of this process? So there's this, yeah, this annual monsoon season cycle that you're looking at. Yes. But there's also a larger timescale where you're looking into the past and looking at how these numbers changed over time. How far back did you look? The data goes as far as even 1960s or 1970s, but majority of the boreholes that we looked at to quantify the volumetric capture in this paper covers the period approximately uh, from 1988 to 2018. So I'm going to ask you what changed over time in a minute, but I want to take a little side trip to pumping water during the dry season. What exactly does it mean to be pumping water during this time? There is plenty of water because of monsoon rainfall during the monsoon wet season, which is roughly speaking uh, from May to October, when about 90% rainfall falls in the country. Whereas the dry six months between November and uh, April, there is less than 10% of the annual rainfall. So there, is, there are months when it doesn't rain at all in Bangladesh. But you have to produce crops to feed people. There are 165 million people in the country. So you have to produce crops. And during the dry season, the farmers produce primarily rice crops. And one of the rice crops, which is a very high yielding, highly productive rice, it's called the boro rice, which is very kind of water hungry. It takes about 500 millimeter to 1000 millimeter of rain water to produce boro rice. And that boro rice during the dry season almost entirely comes from groundwater in Bangladesh. So this is what farmers use groundwater for in the dry season to produce rice crops. So they're bringing water to the surface to produce this rice crop. There are something like 1.5 million shallow irrigation pumps operate during the dry season in Bangladesh. A majority of them is powered through electricity. A fraction of them also powered through diesel and other fuels. So you pump it out from the aquifers and then you irrigate your rice crops and other crops during the dry season. How does this affect the water table? All this pumping, all of this rice growing, these people coming in, density. What do you see in your data? How does this change over time? We have observed Bengal water machine operating and creating more storage space over time. It's not all a success story. There are places where we need to be quite careful in terms of monitoring, in terms of management strategy. The Bengal water machine doesn't operate everywhere. For instance, places like the capital city, Dhaka city of Bangladesh, where nearly 20 million people are dependent on groundwater for their drinking water and domestic water supply. And groundwater is pumped heavily and intensively, therefore declining of groundwater levels over time has been reported. 
there are locations where the surface geology is such that it doesn't enable more infiltration of rainfall or the surface water to replenish the underlying uh, aquifer. So these data let you target where the water machine is happening and how effective it would be to encourage this in different locations, different parts of the country. Exactly. Yes. Let's talk about the scale. I think this is really kind of amazing. How much water storage are we talking about being built up here when the Bengal water machine is in effect? Yes, we're talking about a huge amount of water. When I managed to do the quantification to map out the uh, storage gain and uh, groundwater capture over time, the figures that we got range from 75 to 90 cubic kilometers of water being captured through the process of the Bengal water machine over a period of nearly 30 years. Wow, that is a huge amount. Those are very large sounding numbers. But can you put that in context? How big is this? These uh, figures kind of compare very well with the large dams. So our quantified freshwater capture volumetrically is equivalent to twice the reservoir capacity of the Three Gorges Dam in China and the Hoover Dam in the U.S. So it's a huge amount of, of fresh water. We talked a little bit about how this is not happening everywhere that you looked in Bangladesh, that it's dependent on what's happening on the surface, on geology. But can it be also happening in other parts of the world? Are there other places that should be looking to see if this is occurring? We can see this Bengal water machine operating in other similar environments, such as the other Asian megadeltas and other places around the world where surface geology is comparable. Do you have an example you could share? On top of my mind, I can say, well, we can see that it is happening in the Ganges floodplain of India. We can see it happening in Mekong River Delta. We can see it happening in Red River and other kind of Asian mega deltas. It could even happen in you know some parts of the U.S. where the geology is such that enable induced uh, groundwater recharge. And in fact, I know from other literature that there has been reporting of freshwater capture in different parts of the United States. So it is actually happening, but it's just a matter of quantifying it. It can be quite challenging if you don't have the observation data. Right. And if you wanted to, say, pursue this option, oh, this is a way we can start to conserve water or get water more easily year-round, you then have to start doing a lot of pumping, which can be energy-intensive. Is there a more sustainable way to do this? That's a very good question, especially when we are talking about climate change and climate mitigation by cutting down fossil fuel use. As I mentioned earlier, that there are 1.5 million irrigation wells operate during the dry season in Bangladesh. A majority of these pumping wells is powered by electricity, which is quite energy intensive. But recently, the government of Bangladesh, along with the various donors and uh, NGOs, are trying to introduce solar-powered irrigation wells by which you can continue to induce more groundwater recharge and continue to increase the capture. But at the same time, you can do it in a kind of sustainable way. Thanks so much, Shams. Thank you, Sarah, for having me.
Mohammed Shamsu Daha is an associate professor in humanitarian science at University College London's Institute for Risk and Disaster Reduction. You can find a link to the science paper we discussed at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science site at science.org slash podcast or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by Sarah Crespi with production help from Podigy, Kevin McLean, and Megan Cantwell. Transcripts are by Scribby. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.